0: I mean, I had some incredible encounters there. I had a komodo come up and lick my lens. Um, it was amazing, and because I, you know, I could tell, and I kept and worked with monitors, right. and so obviously in a split second can like go mm-hmm. intense, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you like you can see can see that body language. It was very relaxed and it was very curious mm-hmm. and you can see where they're focusing and of course they're licking uh the lens and the camera and it's like well that's an an, an inanimate object i don't care about that Mm -hmm. um and i'm obviously behind it not making sudden movements or being an idiot
1: hey friends and welcome to the modern medusa podcast friends welcome back to the modern medusa podcast this is your host dominique defalco of defalco reptiles i am so excited for today's guest i am recording um, with someone who i've looked up to for a while and i have followed for a long time shannon wild who is a world-renowned wildlife photographer a public speaker and also a huge advocate for conservation across the globe i cannot wait to learn more about her story to get that story to you guys. And you can find more out about her travels and all the incredible animals she's gotten to interact with in some way or another. So I'm going to start right off the bat. If you don't follow her on Instagram, recommend pulling that up and then listening to the rest of the episodes. So you've got a good idea of who we're talking to. So Shannon, good morning. I guess it's morning for me, but hello, Shannon. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. And yes,
0: it is 5pm for me. I'm in South Africa. So getting to the end of the day.
1: Yeah, end of the day for you. I have um, two cups of coffee next to me because it is morning for me. (laughs) Um, Well, Shannon, thank you so, so much for joining me. Um, First off, like I said, huge fan of your work. Super excited to talk to you. I feel like I'm like a kid. Um for those who don't know you you said that you are currently in South Africa but you are originally Australian born so can you kind of give me a little run through of who is Shannon Wild and we can kind of go from there
0: Yeah absolutely so as you said Australian and I moved to South Africa in 2013 so uh, about 8 years ago and this is definitely home now I I can't even imagine being back like this is This is where my life is, Um, Mm -hmm. and I have the very uh, fortunate job of getting to photograph and film wildlife uh, in its natural habitat. Um, Yeah, so Africa is a really good base for that, obviously, especially if you're filming wildlife documentaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even though I work kind of all over the world, not lately, but in general, (laughs) Uh yeah, it's a really it's a really good base. Um mm-hmm. but Australia obviously awesome for reptiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was very involved in the herpetological community when I was back there. And it's actually how I got my start. So
1: So that's actually what I was I, I mean ask. obviously
0: I can go into that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was gonna ask. I was gonna say, um, I did an episode a couple weeks ago with, uh, Ty Iper and Emma Dixon, who are both private keepers in Australia and growing up around the animals that I pay thousands of dollars to keep in my apartment yeah. <laughs> is obviously very different, but, um, how did you, how was your interaction or introduction to the animals around you and kind of piqued your interest, especially when you were younger?
0: It's something that's always been there, you know mm-hmm. it's this innate thing, I think if you're an animal lover it it kind of just is uh and then Australia, we have some incredible wildlife, but especially in terms of diversity on the reptile front um so i I think it's more common now, but certainly uh that was just something that piqued my interest. you know, I'm not kind of only interested in the cute and cuddly things or um, you know everything fascinates me and I was definitely mm-hmm. the kid running around trying to catch lizards and mm-hmm. and all the things and I remember I think I was eight when I found an injured blue tongue lizard that had been hit by a car just on its uh, jaw and I I remember taking that in and you know like a syringe feeding it and that was kind of my introduction to sort of hands-on with reptiles mm-hmm. and that kind of just progressed although fairly gradually it wasn't uh until I was I think in my early 20s until I got um my first pet reptile like officially and and then it kind of just went crazy I'm like a 150 percent person like if I'm doing it I'm doing it so yeah <laughs> I I got super involved and I got a, a central netted dragon. I lived in, in an apartment. Mm-hmm. So I went thinking I was going to get a bearded dragon because it's kind of like mm-hmm. the standard and especially in Australia, yeah, um, you know, very charismatic uh, lizard and so much care information out there. Uh, and I went to this place and there was this little central netted dragon, which is not a common species to keep. Mm-hmm it's uh it's a desert species it is much much smaller than a bearded dragon and kind of um like very smooth scales and like a long body really beautiful like a reticulated pattern on the back mm-hmm. and he he was just like running up and down his enclosure and i was captivated like i like this is my guy i'm taking him home but the funny thing is there wasn't a lot of care information so yeah that got me really interested in trying to learn more about this particular species. And obviously it's a desert adapted species. So there's certain information that I could take, um, you know, from bitter dragon care. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I really kind of went on this mission to research as much as possible. And it ended up being a book. So I think about three years later, uh, I released captive care of the Central net of dragon because there was just nothing else out there. Wow, you so, really just said,
1: you know, my yeah, like I it totally went into it, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, I've got a tattoo of uh,
0: of my boy. This is like yeah. an outline, although he was bigger than this, so this is on my wrist, mm-hmm. um, and it's like an aerial. I took made it from a photograph that I'd taken of him, and. It's interesting because they are a fairly short lived species.
1: So yeah, I have, I pulled them up in the other of, screen. Yeah. Oh,
0: they're so beautiful. They're so, very oh, cute. They're so mm-hmm. handsome. Yeah. And they're very, very charismatic, like, like bearded dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they're quite a short lived species, not like the bitter dragons. So if it's kind of rough out in the wild, it could be an annual species, 18 months, maybe two years. Mm-hmm. In captivity, it was kind of around the four to five mark um but he he lived until he was just over eight so it was I mean he was geriatric by then but it it was like yeah he was
1: an old man Um, and when you got him he was so cute when you got him was he are are most of the uh netted dragons that are in captivity wild caught or was it a captive bred species no
0: no, so definitely a captive bred Mm -hmm you know i'm actually i've been out of australia for 8 years now so i'm not fully up to date with the legislation but as a general rule there is there's you know it's not legal to wild catch anything yeah. and as you probably know you can't keep um, anything but indigenous species right so right. it's it can be quite different to overseas i know in certainly in southern africa it's still common for people to have um, foreign species like not Mm -hmm. native in fact I think it's illegal to keep native species so it's the other Mm. way around it's very Australia is very very strict with its borders and keeping everything that's endemic there and obviously we've had major issues in the past with invasive species or species that have been brought in not just reptiles but Um, like the cane toad for example and it's just decimating our natural wildlife because it's not adapted to this kind of uh, predator and -hmm. including uh, it's really hitting the other reptile species Um, yeah so it's a major issue so they're very very strict on that so yeah it's it's um, that was a, a captive bred situation and you know I don't know how popular they are now but like I said when I Gosh, I mean that was like 20 years ago when I got him. Mm-hmm. Um maybe more actually. So yeah, I'm not sure how things are. I'm a little out of touch on the Australian front, unfortunately. I've been back once since I yeah. moved
1: here. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a dream <laughs> yeah. for me to go there. I I would love to go to that's Australia. Magic. But I think that's every herper's dream is to go to Australia, you know, okay. to be able to see the animals like I said like I keep a lot of Australian <laughs> yeah. species. Absolutely. Um, and that is something that was really interesting when I was speaking with Ty and Emma because they were talking about exotics and they were referring to corn snakes. Yes, and that cracked me up because in the <laughs> US, it's like, like oh, it's a corn snake. It's so common. Yeah, I mean, still like a yeah. lovely and exciting animal. Yeah, it's but... like
0: a, a beginner reptile, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Oh, so funny. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that's really cool that you. uh, you notice that passion, young, and I think that is really how it goes for a lot of of animal people is like you're you're really born an animal person um and you grab onto that fairly young how were your was your family when you were bringing home blue tongue skinks and such and and caring for those were they supportive of you from memory
0: somewhat supportive, but my dad uh was a farmer, and so the old school attitude of you know the only good snake is a dead snake mm-hmm. um, so I definitely didn't get the love of reptiles from there mm-hmm. <laughs> it was self um exploring kind of thing uh, but once I uh, started keeping reptiles and I had um a brittle's uh, python uh for a while as well and they get a pretty decent size yeah, and I, I've got two of them I can <laughs> Ah, they're so beautiful. Also, I, I just, them. for some reason, I, I gravitated towards desert species. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my dad would come visit. I mean, I was an adult at this point and out of home and he would come visit and he'd always want to like, um, you know, hold the snake. And so he, you could see, he was like, oh, this is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. They're not, you know, as bad as <laughs> he thought. I was just saying, I don't think my mom is convinced. Yeah. still. <laughs>
1: Yeah. But no, I love that. I love when family who maybe isn't totally on board is like, we're going to try to be supportive. Like my uh, older sister, she came into town for the holiday and I've taken a picture with her three years in a row with my green tree Python. And last year, because of COVID, she wasn't able to make it back home. So I don't have a picture from last year. And so the picture from two years ago is like this little yellow worm that she's holding. And then this year it's like a full grown green tree. python. And you can tell she's nervous, but she's so supportive and like wants to. And I'm like, that means so much. Thank you.
0: And it's such an important part of the education. And, you know, for me now, I don't, I don't keep uh, any reptiles now. And this job is a little, um, Kind of uh, transient, mm-hmm. but I try to now kind of do that same sort of level of education through you know posting pictures and hopefully interesting enough pictures that the people that aren't that way inclined are at least intrigued enough to appreciate the beauty. Or, um, certainly if they're scared of snakes, I know like pictures can be triggering, but. Mm-hmm. I've definitely seen a lot of people that would not want to be physically in proximity to a snake but they can actually appreciate you know a picture and I think that's the first step is okay I see why you're interested or um, Mm -hmm. you know it's really beautiful or this and that and then that might lead to okay well I could be in a room with one if I you know knew that someone was like controlling it and then Mm -hmm. they start to learn okay they're not out there to get you um and they're actually really fascinating and they all have their personalities and different characters and And they're
1: beautiful like they are absolutely beautiful beautiful. i love seeing um obviously pictures of snakes like in their natural habitat but um a great instagram account i follow is a photographer zach her he's actually from ohio um And he travels to people's private collections and takes photos of their uh, reptiles and the beauty that's within the animals that like we see every day. And you don't really, I think sometimes as an animal keeper, as much as I love my animals, I take for granted like what I have, you know, and and the fact that some of the animals I keep, people may never see. And so to see him capture the beauty of them so well is just amazing so if you're not following him yes. everyone should follow yes, i am making art yeah it's okay. i am making art on instagram he's fantastic he's a great guy hi zach if you're listening <laughs> but he does awesome. really following oh yeah followed back <laughs> that's okay he'll be excited Yay. Yay. <laughs> he's, he's great but i was going to ask with that i know that sometimes i see on his page that there's pushback from people who do say like only sna- good snake is a dead snake, like those kinds of things Ugh, on your own yeah. page. How do you handle comments like that? Or do you just kind of let them let them be? Cause with the following as large as yours, I can imagine it's hard to police that. So it's interesting. I was
0: having this conversation yesterday um, hmm. with a friend and what I've actually noticed is it was a lot worse in the past. I had some, some really enthusiastic trolls, um, and you know that seems to have tapered off. And I think it's probably part of Instagram's algorithm of mm-hmm. like picking up on those things and blocking uh, certain words. Because I I don't think the people have disappeared, but I think it's more regulated. Yeah. But it certainly, uh, you know, the stuff that happens now, I I for the most part, I will try to ignore if unless I really see uh, an opportunity for education. But you can generally tell like, there are certain people that are just doing it for reaction. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's definitely been some very volatile people in the past. And um, even before I, I moved here to Africa. So I've been shooting professionally for 18 years Mm -hmm. and so the first decade was in Australia and that's really where I established myself and my work and it was very reptile focused so Mm -hmm. uh, similar to him I was doing a lot of studio work and I would go around to private collections and so I have a really uh, large archive of Australian reptiles Mm -hmm. you know in studio and it can be kind of I think with any uh interest or hobby, it can be a very polarizing, and so you know I think as a as a result of being so active in that community there, it was just by default that there's always going to be people like you can't make everyone happy right um, but I have to say, I feel like it has dropped off, and I don't know if that's because I'm not engaging as much maybe in it or I'm, you know. Mm-hmm. Or I think very much the the Instagram has kind of got it more of a handle on on not I don't even see it. Which yeah. Is well, that's great that's for my very mental good. health.
1: <laughs> I, I can imagine. I think I think uh, when um when they started to allow you to like block words where you don't have to see them on social media yeah. and such, I did that on Twitter. I a have lot. a
0: few. I have a few certain words blocked. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Nobody's got time for that. Yeah because it's I think um, you know especially I know people don't want to talk about the pandemic but like at the beginning of the pandemic especially with social media the doom scrolling and just getting Mm -hmm. into you know you have time to sit there and read comments or read what people who don't have shouldn't have an opinion on different topics have to say and it could be super depressing yeah yeah it can be it can be difficult for the mental health Um, so I was actually those I'm going to ask you about COVID in a minute, because I obviously, like you said, you have a very active, you're traveling a lot because of your work, but I want to talk more about how you first got into photography and um, kind of where did you learn your skill and how did you start to get the recognition that you now have? So Raja,
0: my adorable little central netted dragon was basically my first uh, model and who I practice on mm-hmm. in photography-wise. So I I actually, I didn't pick up a camera until I was about 24. Um, so I was working as a graphic designer and I, that was kind of the career I was going in.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And all the wildlife-related stuff was outside of work. So I was a, a wildlife volunteer rescuer mm-hmm. in Australia with a focus on reptile rehabilitation um so it was all sort of outside my work hours so i got sort of my creative fix at work and then mm-hmm. the wildlife fix separately um with a lot of the, the volunteer stuff or, you know, just a hobby. Right. Uh, and then I happened to get a camera for the design business. And so naturally my subject was going to be <laughs> what was near me, had right. to be animals. And of course, Raja was there. Um, so that's who I started practicing on. And like I said, he's very charismatic. So he was a great little model. And it kind of just exploded from there. So it was very gradual, but I found Uh, because I was so involved in the reptile community that there were people that would want me to come and you know photograph their reptiles Mm -hmm. Uh, and then it kind of evolved into shooting for reptile magazines and then I realized that I actually enjoyed it far more than the graphic design and I I then consciously made a decision to kind of transition over to photography full-time if possible Mm -hmm. and animal photography it's it's tough to make a living on. Um, so it took quite a while, but I did that very gradual transition and so also created a, a pet photography business mm-hmm. um, called Wet Nose Photos. And so I was doing a lot of dog and cat photography, yeah. uh, which was a really a uh, really great way to hone my skills um, with moving being subjects mm-hmm. um, which obviously- yeah because
1: cats and dogs are not school- really going to listen
0: <laughs> yeah and I would do very natural shoots we'd go to the park or the beach and that kind of thing and I would just let them you know be themselves mm-hmm. and I'd run around and just try to capture that and so photography wise I'm self-taught and I just I found an interest in it and because I was interested in it I educated myself in it so obviously Mm -hmm. and and back then especially it was magazines it was photo books and the internet was just kind of getting popular and Instagram was not even an idea Mm -hmm. Um, so thank god for that now because it's a vital tool in my toolbox
1: Mm -hmm. um,
0: from a marketing perspective but but yeah I would I would buy lots of magazines and photo books and try to work out why I liked certain photos I would try to reverse engineer them by trying to work out you know if I could see where a catch light was in an eye if that was like the main source of light and what angle was it at and you know I just kind of made lots of mistakes and learned from them and the beauty of digital photography is the the feedback loop is a lot quicker than what film used to be so You don't have to wait for anything to get developed and then you've forgotten Mm. what settings you used. Yeah, Um, You can change settings and and see how that changes the image. And so it can be quite, uh, I know, you know, the resources we have, YouTube, and if you really want to learn about something, there are the resources to do it now, Mm -hmm. um, I think, in an easier way. So, yeah, I just kind of bumbled along and then eventually... Uh, managed to get started getting paid for it and yeah tried to make a career out of it and here we are
1: yeah (laughs) and I think you've done it um (laughs) that that had to be an incredibly scary first step to like actually make this your career
0: yeah the the giving up the the job was a big milestone and it was very Mm -hmm. like I said it was gradual I I started wet nose photos and I was shooting pet photography on the weekends and you know I was just I was so incredibly run down uh, Mm -hmm. trying to juggle both Mm -hmm. and it's really hard to make that decision to give up the paycheck For something freelance, and just never really knowing if you're going to be able to pay the bills, and so it was. It's been a a roller coaster since then. It definitely was not like a smooth (laughs) increase. Yeah, Um, and there were periods where I had to go back and consult in art direction and stuff like that, just to kind of mix it up. And I, I also, you know, like I said, animal photography. It's so niche. Mm -hmm. So getting paid enough consistently enough is is quite tough so I would um at the beginning I would shoot anything that I could get paid so I would do commercial food photography industrial I would do corporate like anything and Mm -hmm. you know it all contributed to my uh photography skills and you know learning my gear and all all of that that I could then input into um wildlife photography which was my focus and You know, then once I got really confident with the gear and the fundamentals of photography, then you can really explore the creative side of it, which is where is where I get the most enjoyment. Obviously, Mm -hmm. it's the subject first and foremost, being uh, animals. Um, But then, you know, trying to make something interesting and and beautiful out of that.
1: Mm -hmm. That's so cool. I I like, love it. I, your passion radiates off of you. It makes me excited. I'm like, I should find a camera. Like, like I need another hobby. So when you, when did you start like going out in the field and just trying to find animals to take pictures of? Because obviously while the wet nose photography, bringing an animal to a park, you you're predicting where they're going to be the the animals in the park, like in your general vicinity. Did you start with with reptiles in the wild, did you ever do birds or stuff like that? Like where did you first start to work with a more unpredictable subject?
0: Yeah, the the pets was definitely a lot more controlled and so mm. I obviously had treats and squeaky toys and so I could control to a certain degree. Right. Uh, nothing like what I do now, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but one of the beautiful things about Australia is, you know, so many wild places and so I would do a lot of um, what your listeners would be familiar with is like going on night drives, herping, and, you know, especially after rains or seeing if we can find anything uh, that just is like coming out on the road or Mm -hmm. in like bush or rainforest. I was um, in Southeast Queensland, which, um, depending on which direction I could access like a few different habitats. And then if I went a bit further afield, then I could start getting into like more desert and sort of dry areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would make, you know, little trips here and there and little road trips and, um, and then things like koalas, which were, I mean, I could go to a local park and maybe find one if I was lucky. That blows know. my mind. That <laughs> blows uh, my uh, mind. I remember um, I was doing a dog shoot at this really cool, beautiful park and I had to like, before the client arrived, I saw a um, a mother and a baby koala mm-hmm. in a tree. So I'm like doing this little wildlife shoot before we started the pet shoot and I can still picture the, the shots now. Um, yeah. And then I started to do more, uh, like further afield shoots so for example I went to Grand Cayman Island and volunteered over there with the blue iguanas mm-hmm. um, and the blue iguana recovery uh, program over there and um, I did like a US trip back in there at some point and went out and looked for um, like Hiller monsters and all sorts of uh, cool thing so I just kind of sporadically when I could did little trips here and there Mm -hmm. Uh, and then when um, as I was leaving Australia permanently I spent a month in Indonesia and obviously went to Komodo Island um, oh my god bucket (laughs) bucket list uh, dream like pinnacle reptile in the wild situation and I I've been back since so I've been mm-hmm. there twice and so the first time I went I was just uh doing photography. I hadn't started uh, filming yet mm-hmm. and so focused on doing stills and it was just it was amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean oh my god I just I'm I, like i, I still get chills. <laughs> yeah I yeah they are so impressive it is I I I literally have goosebumps right now thinking about it. And so then the fact that I got to go back a few years later and mm-hmm. I was filming at that point. And so I got to film and uh, I got to see them on the beach, which is what I really wanted the first mm-hmm. time, but I didn't get to see that, um, you know, just like strolling on the beach and like this beautiful blue water and they're like there's blood like dripping from the mouth and I've got like these really tight shots it was hectic. It was so cool. I'm oh really gosh. desperate to go back.
2: I, can't I really imagine. want to go back
0: at a different time of year than what I've been, um, to see the, the males doing yeah. the mating combat.
1: That'd well, if amazing. you need an assistant, I'm, I'm a lot yeah. of fun. <laughs> I'll meet um, you there. <laughs> so <laughs> when you're doing these large trips, I mean, specifically, I guess Indonesia trip would be a big one. Um, were you, were these self-funded or were you already working with an organization? And then did you meet guides there who kind of showed you where you need to go, or were you just kind of trying to figure it out yourself?
0: So first trip to Komodo was a self-funded figure it out as I went trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second trip was um, a documentary production, mm-hmm. that, a, a documentary that was being made on me filming so we had to obviously had film permits mm-hmm. uh, pre-organized. We had um, like head of parks department with us while we're filming, you know, to make sure it's all mm-hmm. above board and we're you know, behaving properly, of course, <laughs> um, you know. And uh, so there's a lot more um, cost involved and there's like more people uh but you do get uh, more access as Mm -hmm. well. So like the first trip I was as basically as a tourist and literally I would get a guide and go out and I'd just try to take as many pictures in that situation as I could. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did it a few times and the guides were very different in terms of their ability and probably experience, Mm -hmm. but also their attitude towards the dragon. So I remember my first guide was clearly terrified of them.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can understand that though.
0: Yeah. Like, but as a reptile person and lover and someone that's worked with reptiles at that point, Mm -hmm. um, you know, for a long time, you understand reptile, like the body language um, and that kind of thing. And he, he didn't have that yet. So it Mm -hmm. was frustrating because I guess I kind of knew what the limits or the the reactions were and he mm-hmm. was like really terrified of everything. And then my next guide um, was incredible, had been there forever, was really familiar with the dragons. Um, and I was fortunate enough that uh, my, my husband who was like my brand new husband <laughs> at the time on that trip, mm-hmm. um, who's also a reptile lover.
1: Good, um, good. Keep them around yeah. then.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, we, it wasn't busy that day. So we got this guide all to ourselves.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so because both of us are experienced and confident around reptiles and so was the guide, it was a much more productive uh, situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were able to obviously get lower and position you know, in situations that we were, um, you know, wanted to shoot from as opposed to um, being in a, a group. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of luck of the draw. And then, of course, the next trip, you know, you're you're paying Forest Department to supervise and literally, you know, help you find the dragons and then you have the full attention of uh, those people and that area. Mm-hmm. And so we can obviously go down onto the beach where uh the dragons are instead of having to stick to a path and kind of look from afar and right. um yeah and so I I mean I had some incredible encounters there I had a Komodo come up and lick my lens um it was amazing oh yeah. my God. And, and because and because I you know I could tell and I kept and worked with monitors right and so you know they they obviously, in a split second can, like, go mm-hmm. intense. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you, like, you can see can see that body language. It was very relaxed and it was very curious. Mm-hmm. And you can see where they're focusing. And, of course, they're licking uh, the lens and the camera. And it's like, well, that's an, an, an inanimate object. I don't care about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm obviously behind it not making sudden movements or being an idiot. Right. So, it all kind of just came together where they were super relaxed. And then we had a situation where we were filming them feeding. And so that was definitely like, take a few steps back. Mm-hmm. I've been bitten by monitors before. I've mm-hmm. had little ones that have literally busted my knuckle. I do not want to be near the mouth of that animal. Otherwise no. <laughs> it would be the last thing I, I see. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's
0: like educated Um Calculated risk, mm-hmm. you know, with experience. But yeah, I am, amazing.
1: Oh I'm like in awe. So you said that uh, they were filming at this point for a documentary on you. Yes, is that out uh, on on my? F- yes. Oh my goodness, it came out like
0: years ago. I have. Uh, to, I, I'm sorry, You're I didn't watch back. it
1: beforehand. <laughs> no, I'm writing okay. it down. I'll send
0: you a link. Afterwards. Yeah, please. Um, yeah. So it's on, it's on my husband and, and I, Mm -hmm. and spans a few countries actually. So we, uh, Borneo, um, uh, Indonesia, specifically Komodo Island and Kenya as well. Wow! Oh
1: my gosh. That's so cool. (laughs) Once again, I'm like geeking out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so in these situations where you're doing like larger scale projects, um, like getting the forest, uh, the forest department, is that what you said? Yes. I yeah, getting
0: forest department or like national parks. What we were right national parks.
1: like getting more like authorities involved. um Is there ever any manipulation of like kind of guiding the animals to do what you want? Like as far as like feeding them to get those feeding shots or hurt. Like I, don't, I guess it's different animal to animal, but like hurting animals in a certain direction. Or are you just do you spend a lot of time waiting, or is it a little bit of both? Uh, so that my
0: life feels like it's waiting, yeah. <laughs> but that is a, definitely a a privilege to do so, you know, like mm-hmm. if you're out in the wild and like that's your day, that's awesome. Like even yeah. if nothing happens, um, there are definitely being in this industry and being in the, the television industry. So mm-hmm. I, you know, what I do is, is nature documentaries. So, yeah. you know, it's national geographic and uh, Disney and BBC and like, um, It's not like I'm in the industry, so I've heard, I've definitely heard things. I've heard horror stories. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not doing like reality TV with animals involved where I 100% think that there would be some level of abuse involved because, Mm -hmm. you know, it depends on the people, it depends on, you know, the animal keepers that are managing the animals, it mm-hmm. depends on the amount of pressure that the production is putting on those people to perform and perform within a certain time. Right. Um, or if the animals have to wait so long until it's time to like, you know, reptiles, for example, there are definitely shows that I've watched where I'm like, that's not a wild snake. Like you mm-hmm. can see where it's been rubbing on a yeah. cage. Right. While it's been waiting to be pulled out to then go up a tree and look like you found it in the wild, mm-hmm. it's which you know I wholeheartedly disagree with that is mm-hmm. not thankfully not what um you know I haven't been involved in that, but i I've heard some horror stories so there it hundred percent happens, you mm-hmm. know, and it really comes down to the people involved and their attitude right. um or how assertive they are with other people that are on the production, you know, and setting boundaries and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I can imagine But most that. of my job is waiting. Yeah. So yeah. when you're on looking. these, <laughs> I mean, you can't think of better places to wait and look though. I've seen the pictures yeah. you post. It seems like you're in beautiful places. <laughs> um, so when you are in situations where like you're filming or you're taking the photos, are you, are you working with a team? Are you generally solo? Does it depend on the project? And then how much control do you have as a photographer or cinematographer to be like, you know, we have to stop. Like, I don't feel comfortable or or things like that.
0: It varies so much. Mm -hmm. So it depends very much on uh, the species or the behavior that we're looking to film.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: Depends on the country. Uh, So Yeah, it depends on, like, how long I know I'm in that location or I have. So, for example, um, I filmed a documentary for National Geographic called The Real Black Panther, Mm. Uh, but we shot that back in 2018, 2019, and Mm. we were on location for 18 months in the forest. Mm. And so basically this whole documentary is on this one melanistic leopard Mm -hmm. in 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 southern India and we just have to go into the forest and a look for him Mm -hmm. it's a very dense forest Mm -hmm. Uh, and then b if we find him hope that he's doing something interesting enough to make like a one-hour documentary (laughs) yeah Um, so yeah I mean that was 18 months but 18 months was decided purely on the budget that Nat Geo wanted to allocate to it Mm -hmm. so we could have easily spent another 18 months following this cat and trying to get you know compelling behavior Um, I mean it was it's literally the hardest shoot I've ever done it was Mm -hmm. it was so tough because there's there's no like tracking collar on it there's no like you know there's no you basically and it's so different to Africa. So at that mm. point, I was also so used to tracking animals in Africa, which is um, often you might have a guide, a local guide who's like very familiar with the the terrain and the bush. Right. In Africa, generally, you're looking for. Footprints on the ground from whether it's elephant, rhino, big cats, whatever, Mm -hmm. um, you're looking for that. But you're also listening for like alarm calls and animals. But for the most part, you're looking for tracks
2: Mm -hmm. and
0: kind of following those. And then I got to India and it was like it was so dense and thick. Like the, the ground does nothing. You can't see anything. Right. So it was very reliant on listening to monkey alarm calls and bird alarm calls. So had to learn all these sounds and these different species and then learn kind of the lay of the land and and kind of realise, okay, so you're in the forest, there's a waterhole here, there's a waterhole over there. Okay, if there's an alarm call here, then I saw the the leopard here last time, maybe by now it's kind of making its way through here, mm-hmm. and it's going through this really dense part of the forest. So you're basically making kind of educated guesses, but you're guessing. yeah, and so I think over eighteen months, our sightings were actually pretty good. I think mm-hmm. they averaged at about maybe once a week. Wow. which is really good mm-hmm. <laughs> for a leopard, A for a leopard, but also we're not just looking for any leopard that we can find. It's which, that one. Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of nature documentaries where it's a compilation of
2: mm-hmm.
0: individuals to create a story Mm -hmm. you know of the species so for those of us that are in the industry we're like okay I can tell that's not the same you know wild dog or we're saying it is but that's not um you know you can see a marking is different or whatever
2: Mm -hmm.
0: but overall it's to to fill out the story and and you know, make the storyline and the, the emotional connection and get the message or the educational message across. Yeah. But literally, that was this one individual. And at one point, he went missing for two months. He got in this really hectic fight with another male, a dominant male leopard, got a horrific injury. And this is what the documentary becomes about. Mm-hmm. Um, got a horrific injury, then went underground. And we're like, he's dead basically like, so we still go out every single day. Yeah. So there's, there's tigers there and there's uh, like Indian wild dogs and elephants and different things. So mm-hmm. we would go out and obviously film to try to fill out the story and the context of the forest. Mm-hmm. But we're looking for the black Panther and you can't and find I, him, <laughs> I don't know if we have a documentary anymore. Oh my and God. literally Nat Geo executives came out and spent a week with us. And we were at the six-week point of not seeing him at this point. So we're all like, I don't know if we have a job anymore. Oh. <laughs> and then literally then like a week after they left, he showed up. And we're like, thank
1: God he's alive. Oh my thank God. badass. That beautiful, is... beautiful cat. So I have like a million yeah. questions. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I <know>. okay. I... <laughs> okay. I'm going to ask you a few questions. It we totally went is, off the
0: reptile subject, but
1: yeah. No, screw the reptiles. I don't care anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what you're speaking so casually about this, and I would be terrified. Do you have any fear when you're in these situations, or is it just something you're kind of used to at this point? Like yeah, I know, I, I know mean, you do know so the I mean, animals and stuff, but I can just imagine that could be kind of scary.
0: I have to tell you, there is literally. A vervet monkey walking past my bedroom window right now, like a, a troop of monkeys.
1: <laughs> crazy, crazy. What the? Um, like what? <laughs> I do see a squirrel outside mine. Uh, you know. <laughs> and there, oh, there's a baby. Cute. Oh, my okay.
0: <laughs> focus, focus, Shannon. Focus.
1: No, you're good. Um, this is excellent.
0: <laughs> so I'm not, you know, I think that innate. um, love of animals and you know it was a gradual building of career and uh so i mean there's a handful of times where i've been i'm like this is dicey um mm-hmm. but not not often so you know i'm going into a lot of areas with say an experienced guide who mm-hmm. is maybe driving the vehicle and i'm you know so that i can sh- shoot like photograph and film off a vehicle Mm -hmm. um so you're you're researching you're relying on local knowledge uh and then you add on experience to that so um you know it's also learning as you go i've made some mistakes um some stupid mistakes like um that thankfully i wasn't killed but I I was so I was more by a cheetah like a year after I moved here. <laughs> yeah. What? And it was out of absolute complacency and stupidity yeah. on my part. And, you know, I look back now and I'm like, this was her body language. And mm-hmm. this is kind of the vibe she was giving off. And the, the the signs were there, but I was so focused on like setting up my shot and preparing and I, you know, paid the price for it and, and, and got a decent injury on my arm, but she was going for my throat. So, you know, I'm actually really lucky that by pure luck and chance that she didn't do that. And so that's something that I learned from and that, thank God it was a Mm cheetah because honestly, if it had been a lion or a leopard, I, it would have hundred percent broken my arm Mm -hmm. if I still had an arm. So Mm -hmm. It's kind of you know I learned the hard way on that situation, and so I'm much more attuned to to big cat behavior and body language and just I think a general awareness mm-hmm. um, and a reminder not to be complacent, you know because we we definitely are in a lot of situations where you're out in the wild on foot with. You know, lions or leopard, and you have to behave a different way if it's a lion than if it's a leopard, than if it's a cheetah. It all Mm -hmm. has different um, requirements. And so, learning where the boundaries are, not to overstep the boundaries, because obviously we want the most natural behavior from the animal. So, it's of no benefit to us either if you're scaring the animals and then they, 90% of the time, they're going to run away. Um, you know and we certainly don't want stressed behavior or <laughs> to be uh, you know on the toothy end if we can help it
1: hey guys this is jeremy turgeon from brass man reptiles and the reptile talk podcast if you're looking for another awesome source of reptile content come on over and check rob and i out talking with reptile keepers from around the block and around the world New episodes air every week and are available on the Brassman Reptiles YouTube channel and all major podcast streaming platforms. We'll see you in the next episode. Are you tired of changing a reptile's UVB light every six months? Well, VivTech Products has the perfect bulb for you. The VivTech SureSun Series UVB and UVA bulb has a typical four-year lifespan with no UVB degradation. That means that your pet will always have the UVB and UVA they need, all while you save up to $400 over the life of the bulb. VivTech, providing a better life for reptiles in our homes and the wild through innovative husbandry. Enjoy the rest of the episode. And so you talk about learning the body language and then specifically with this um, documentary about like learning the bird calls or the monkey calls and such. Is that something you do ahead of time and you research the animals that you will be going into or do you just kind of learn as you go
0: so my husband and I pitched this documentary idea to National Geographic and so we we knew of this melanistic leopard so Mm -hmm. black panther is obviously a like a colloquial term that is going to a a melanistic uh, big cat um, so we pitched that. We got it greenlit. And so we knew of this particular animal, um, but we hadn't ever, either of us, been to India before. So, no, it was literally like, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> we turned up, got to learn it all. And actually we did get there. The The legalities of it all and dealing with the forestry department in India
2: mm-hmm.
0: was such a long process that mm-hmm. um, we did get there. And so we were able to kind of do trips into the forest and kind of explore before we were allowed to legally film. Mm -hmm. So we weren't allowed to take our filming vehicles. We couldn't take any of our professional cameras. So there was like maybe a month where we were just kind of like basically being tourists and like learning as we went. But I definitely feel like it probably took me a good two to three months to feel like I had an understanding of where I was in the forest. Like I have to concentrate really hard. Okay. We took a turn at this tree and then like, and then, Mm -hmm. you know, you start making this mental map of it. Um, But like the alarm calls, there was this bird that I swear to God sounded like um, a langur monkey alarm call. And so the monkeys have different calls depending on what they're calling about. Mm Mm-hmm. And so there's a different level of intensity. There's a different sound. So, you know, you just need to keep hearing it over and over again and kind of um, that may be resulting, like it might be a normal colored leopard comes out, a tiger comes out, or the black panther comes out. And right. then you're like, okay, like you start putting it together. Um but I swear to God, probably the first six months, I was like, I would hear this bird call, and I'm like, alarm call, alarm call, where, where is it coming from? And like, I'd get the driver to be like, zoom up here, and it would literally be nothing. Oh
2: my gosh, this got to be I so frustrating. Yeah, I hated
0: that bird. Um, but you know, eventually, you just yeah, you pick up on these things. So it really depends. But honestly, a lot of once you kind of learn. Like even domestic cat behavior, it really crosses over into mm-hmm. big cat. they a cat is a cat. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if the 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 body language is so similar, like ears go back mm-hmm. or down, you know, are some like heckles come up, the tail does different things, um, maybe the shoulders tense, all these kind of things that I kind of learned and experience, A as a as a pet mum. But as a pet photographer, right, are also things that you kind of then intuitively translate into, and also certainly for lions, very much like their eyes. It's quite interesting how you can be super close. Like if if you go on safari here, depending on where you go, and and you know if the animals have been uh, treated correctly, so you know. Her, Vehicles haven't been like super noisy or Mm -hmm. like driving too fast, or like they basically you become irrelevant to them and they just get on with their lives. Like, it's just a part of you know, if you're going into Kruger National Park, for example, which is like an hour and a half from my house, Mm -hmm. it's you they just don't care. It's like for them, it's like an elephant walking past, and it's like that's not prey for me but Mm -hmm. it's also not a predator, Mm -hmm. if you come like super close to me, yeah, I'm going to move, but you basically don't matter to me. So then, you know, if you behave appropriately and we're being very respectful, you can get super close to say lions feeding on a kill. But if you then suddenly stood up in that vehicle, which looks like a threat, Mm -hmm. um you know or making sudden movements or like making all these loud noises Mm -hmm. there has been a situation where I've been in a in a vehicle and um there was another person in the vehicle who just suddenly wanted to change seats which you just you don't do that Mm -hmm. (laughs) you don't where it's an open safari vehicle it's the lion was the lioness was literally
1: I don't know what feet it would be but like that's okay you could say meters people can google it mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: Okay, maybe like two metres from the vehicle, like maybe the height of a six-foot person, like Mm -hmm. that length. So she was really close, but she was super relaxed. She's just like jowing on something and she's kind of look up every now and then, like fully aware of our presence, but she was Mm -hmm. chill. So this person stood up and is suddenly, you know, like towering and starts to climb over the seats, and she split second changed. Her her face changed. Her yeah. eyes, you could see her eyes. Her pupils just dial, like, whew, dilated. Like she's taking all the information in. It's like, it was so strange. Like her whole face changed, and you're mm-hmm. just like, there is no question. This lion is ready to go. It's like she is pissed, mm-hmm. and so we're kind of like grabbing her in mid stand up, and we're like don't move. Like just stop. Like this lioness, I mean, like I said, 90% of the time she would have turned tail and got herself out of that situation. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was also the possibility that she's like, I'm not, you know, I'm going to protect myself and she's going to like jump on the vehicle and take this person off. So it's, you know, there, there are definitely things that you learn along the way there's a certain level of intuition but there are just by being here like if someone comes on a safari for holiday you're going to have a guide that is going to tell you all these things Mm
2: -hmm.
0: you know try to keep the volume down do not stand up in the vehicle Mm -hmm. um you know all these things so that you have an understanding when you're in certain situations and it does vary for different animals um you need to behave differently
1: Mm -hmm. So in the United States, I know that, um, I follow a woman named Savannah Rose wildlife. Who's also another incredible photographer for anyone listening, give her a listen, uh, give her a follow. She does a lot of work, um, with the grizzlies in the national parks. And, um, one thing she's a big advocate for is protecting grizzlies that are, that, that have been put into bad situations because of human interference. So often with grizzlies or even with the alligators down in Florida and such, if they do come too close to humans or too close to a pet or something, they're often euthanized when it's really not Mm. the animal's fault that we're invading in their space. Is there similar like in South Africa um, with the cheetah that you were mauled by? Obviously like you understand that was your, mistake that caused that or had this line reacted poorly to the woman standing up do they euthanize those animals or are they more understanding of like human error when it comes to that
0: so i think it depends on on where Mm -hmm. in south africa where it happened um in general they're not super tolerant So I definitely um, know of people that by no fault of their own, they're just doing their job, they're checking um, fence lines, they're a ranger Mm -hmm. and part of their job is to check the integrity of the fence lines and, you know, you have to be careful, you're out of the vehicle doing that and was trampled and killed by an elephant. Mm -hmm. And so my understanding is that they euthanized that elephant, Mm -hmm. which doesn't sit well with me because it's, you know, I, there are other certain situations that I'm uh, aware of where if there's habitual um, behavior of an, an animal, a predator, for example, that is then mm-hmm. starting to target people, which right. I do know of a situation um, while we were in India. And India was almost uh, like completely different, like the situation that happened, a few people were killed. And um it was poor choices on the people's part but mm-hmm. it was becoming habitual For so mm-hmm. it was a tiger and it was becoming habitual so it was v- interesting because the you know if it happened in Africa first incident that animal would have been killed well mm-hmm. I say South Africa I'm mm-hmm. not sure on say the policies of, of Kenya or um, you know Botswana or whatnot but I know here the tolerance is fairly low which is interesting because you think the that the the tourism industry is such a huge thing here but honestly incidents are really rare mm-hmm. and so it's usually um, either in a, a captive situation not a wild situation it's um, in places that maybe have been feeding out of a vehicle and then mm-hmm. people are allowed to drive through and then a, it's like the animal equates the vehicle and then the person is supposed to keep their window up but they don't and you know people have been killed here in South Africa in that very situation so that's kind of different. Generally tourist incidents are are very rare Mm -hmm. to non-existent Um, but what happens is the it tends to happen more with guides because they're literally living in the bush 24-7. They're constantly in the situation and their job often involves like going around really remote areas. And so, you know, the, the volume of time and potential interactions are, are a lot higher. Um, but in India, it was interesting because this tiger incident, they after like multiple incidents, they captured the tiger and took it somewhere. They mm-hmm. didn't just automatically kill it. So I have mixed feelings on that because it was this wild animal and now it's it's spending its life in a small cage mm-hmm. in um, a sanctuary, and I say that in air quotes because I don't know anything about the facility, uh, for man-eaters. Like, it's literally a oh. facility that keeps captive men eating tigers. So hmm. that's not an ideal
1: situation. And because there has to be a lot of aggression between the tigers most likely then.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think they're going to be, it's a very tormenting situation. I'm, right. I, I'm sure it's not going to be like this open living situation. It's going to be small cages, but you know, that's, like I said, I haven't seen the facility, but it's it's just such a tricky topic. Mm-hmm. So I know there's definitely pros to that in that India I found was far more tolerant to mm-hmm. human wildlife conflict. Uh South Africa, not so much. Mm-hmm. Uh but in relation to the cheetah, thankfully nothing happened to her other than she got a big chunk of meat once she got off me yeah. <laughs> to keep her occupied. <laughs> yeah <laughs> while i got on um uh got on the vehicle, and again this was a a habituated situation. it wasn't me out in the wild, so it was a controlled situation, and generally that's where the issues happen mm-hmm. so it led to part of me being more complacent than if I had have been out in the wild with a cheetah, I wouldn't have done the things that i did mm-hmm. um and you know this this cheetah wasn't used to tourists or people, but we had special access and she was certainly used to her carers. So she was used Mm. to Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Um and they'd never had incidents before. But like an idiot, I went to set up a shot and crouched down and literally was facing away from her. So yeah, you know, there's no frontal eye contact for Mm -hmm. which is huge for Mm Sheeta. Uh and I suddenly became the size of a toddler. So you know, good luck to her. That's she Took her opportunity, instinct kicked in, and yeah, I, I learned a valuable lesson from that.
1: Was there um, after that specific inst- instance? Was there fear the next time you had uh, to go shoot cheetahs or any other the big cats? Like, did you have, or did you kind of get over that quickly?
0: Uh, I I wouldn't say fear, but. The next time I was in a close proximity situation with the cheetah, I was far more aware mm-hmm. I was like hyper aware of the body language, mm-hmm. and also, I think I had a lot more respect for the capability of that animal. Yeah. I' think I'd underestimated it and, and you know, like I said, I wouldn't have behaved the same way if it had been a lion or a leopard, right. so it was like you know they're actually an incredibly impressive animal mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd say maybe a little bit of apprehension, Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I was, I felt like more educated and, you know, I, it's a, it's a calculated risk where I'm choosing to be in that situation and those situations that I'm in, there's very much an awareness that if something happened, that the animal should be, there should be no harm come to that animal it's Mm -hmm. like I'm not going to make a scene I'm not going to you know sue anybody I don't want anything to happen to the animal like it's my choice to be there Mm -hmm. that's the reason that my time on this earth comes to an end I made that decision Mm -hmm. you know and I'm also behaving as they do and it's my privilege to even be there in the first place so you know for her thankfully it was kind of like um Nothing happened to her. Maybe they just didn't bring people around her for a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. like, mm, that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there it, it really depends on country and probably species, but more so country and, and policy.
1: Mm-hmm. So I want to jump back a little bit because I had another question about the um, documentary about the Black panther, the quote unquote "black Panther, um, yes. and then I've got a couple more questions after that. But one thing you mentioned is that you and your husband pitched this story to, um, or pitched the idea to National Geographic. When you're going into a pitch about an animal where, like you said, it's a very unpredictable situation. You kind of just hope to get some footage. Do you have, here's the story we're going to try to build or, hey, we want to follow this animal and then build a story afterwards. How does that work for the creative process?
0: Yeah, so I think it, we we pitch often, so it really varies depending on the topic, mm-hmm. um, the species or the particular behaviour. Right. For the Black Panther, you know, that's something that's never been professionally documented of how they survive in the wild, how they mm-hmm. live. So while we couldn't go in knowing what we would capture and what the storyline would be, and that did have to evolve naturally while we were out there, Mm -hmm. um when we went into the pitch we had lots of incredible photos of this animal so Mm -hmm. already it's doing half the work for us because it's like whoa like it's so unique it's so beautiful it's in this incredible setting And we hadn't been there yet, so we're kind of like, yeah, we're going to go and, you know, half of it's confidence as well. We're like, we're going to build a story about how Mm -hmm. it does this and, you know, general leopard behaviour. So how it's um, establishing and maintaining its uh, territory, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if it's mating with females, um, how it survives in an environment where there's tigers, um, how it specifically survives versus um normally patterned leopard and Mm -hmm. if there is any difference and it turned out there was because um, in this particular forest it's a deciduous forest so Mm -hmm. in the dry season it's losing all these leaves and it's becoming kind of open very very dry and so we've got footage where we've got a normal colored leopard kind of in the brush and it is when it's not moving it's completely invisible and you only know it's there it starts to like move Mm -hmm. whereas the black panther is literally like a big cardboard cutout silhouette in this environment it cannot like it basically loses its ability to camouflage in this situation during those summer months Mm -hmm. um and also it's fully black so it's absorbing the heat more than the normal pattern leopard so it's it's feeling the effects of the environment and the season more. So it greatly affected its behavior versus the normal patterned leopards there. But then when the the wet season comes around and all of a sudden it gets really lush and there's lots of like shadows and um, it just suddenly has all these hiding places and then you see it starts to excel. And really he came out um, uh, ahead and Mm -hmm took advantage of those situations and created, like, a really incredible territory for himself while we were there witnessing it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he, he definitely had more challenges. And so there were certain things that we didn't know until we got there and kind of learned as we went. Uh, but we went with an idea of this is the story we'd like to create. Right. But like with any documentary, we, we can go in with that idea, or trying to get a certain behavior, um, whether that's actually going to happen or not. Uh, we're at the mercy of, of the animals at the time, and so we just, you know, do our absolute best that we can in the time that we're given, and then try to make a plan at the end. <laughs> so we have all the footage where we're kind of for the Black Panther we're building the story as it happened so -hmm. of course he had this really intense injury so that became like a a focal point of his story Mm -hmm. um and yeah and so kind of tied it into that and very much about the seasons and the challenges for him versus the other so yeah most documentaries tend to evolve a little bit because we it isn't scripted
1: so Mm -hmm. oh gosh that's so cool that's so cool because I watch all these documentaries and now I like the inside scoop um oh man so much time
0: goes into it too like Mm -hmm. you know when we're on this side we might be in a month or two or three months in a location and it ends up being a five-minute segment in a greater documentary it's like it's nuts so much footage that never sees the light of day
1: I can't even imagine so when I was younger like you said you're you're born an animal person you generally know so we would go on um really long car rides as a family usually like 12 hours because I'm in Kentucky Ohio area and we'd go to our family up in New York so we oh, do wow. that trip a couple times a year and we had a built-in DVD player in the, um, in the car and I have two sisters. So we would rotate who gets to pick the movie and like my sisters would pick like Cinderella, like princess diaries. And I'd be like, let's watch blue planet again. And they're like, no. Nice. And I'm like, no, we have to. <laughs> so I used to watch amazing. it and I had five DVDs of it. So we could watch a lot of blue planet and
0: amazing. <laughs> and
1: it's, I mean, I, can only imagine how much not to say that your work isn't difficult but how much more difficult trying to get any underwater footage has to be oh my lord because so hard. you can't yeah. follow any sort of path in the water of you know tracks yeah. or, or things like that. yeah
0: and then also sometimes you're limited with how long if you're diving like how uh-huh. long you can be under and it's so physically draining to be diving and Yeah. So much respect. Like I, I've done some underwater filming, but not for any projects. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and it's just the gear, you know, you have to be so on point because if you flood that camera,
1: it's like, Oh oh my God, I didn't even think about that.
0: That's so expensive. Yeah. Yeah, It's like a whole next level of gear. Um,
1: Yeah. It's a lot. It's it's mad so mad respect for the my, underwater filmmakers. It's phenomenal. It's so cool. Um, yeah. so we are reaching towards the end of our our general time that I you know that we chat. Um, I had a couple last questions for you, and then I do want to talk about your um organization. Um, sorry, was it bracelets for wildlife? Yeah, um, the wild in Africa. Yeah, the wild in Africa. And uh, so let me ask a couple more questions, and then let's talk about that and how we can help you support conservation efforts. Do you have any shots or photos or videos that you've gotten that were off of what you focused on that turned out to be something that you were really proud of or really excited to to see?
0: Yes, so that has definitely happened, and I'm try, I'm searching my mind to pinpoint okay. a situation, uh, but I, I definitely for a fact, like have gone for something. Uh, From memory, so I've been to Madagascar a few times and it's one of my absolute favourite places Mm -hmm. ever Mm -hmm. and I know I went in kind of thinking, um, you know, I want to get photographs of this and this and it turned out differently but then like some of my favourite shots. So, for example, um, there's a giant Malagasy chameleon
1: um, I'm looking at that picture right now no oh, joke yes. I have that picture pulled yes. up because I think it's and such a on, cool shot
0: on the dirt road in Baobab yes and like I honestly were I I can't even still believe that I was there and th- it's so funny because this road was actually quite busy with tourist vehicles and donkeys and carts and like all these things and so after i mean obviously i'm laying on the ground and i'm like doing all these shots and i'm using a wide angle lens and then once mm. i've got a few shots off i'm like okay, i need to get off the road probably not a good idea to lay <laughs> on the road
2: mm-hmm.
0: um and then i so i picked him up to move him off to the other side of the road and so i got a picture with him and he's he's ginormous like he's mm-hmm. like this um and so I'm holding him up near my face so my husband could take a picture of us together. Mm-hmm. And it literally bit me on the neck. And, <laughs> and it did one of those, like, love bite things where it bit, clamped down, and then he shook his head a little bit, which is so, like, that I expect from a monitor lizard, but from yes. a chameleon. it was <laughs> kind of hilarious. Mm-hmm. So anyway got put him over on the other side he's safe and I have like what looks like this ginormous love bite Mm -hmm. like all these little serrated teeth punctures and then all this yellow and green bruising on my neck it looks like I've had like a really fantastic time (laughs) like
1: your husband (laughs) has so many small teeth
0: (laughs) (laughs) and this chameleon I'm like I just saved you yeah
1: so oh very very, very- <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah. Um so then my <laughs> next question was um were there any big projects that because of covid had to be canceled and do you um have any upcoming uh plans now because you know people are getting vaccinated and you're able to to travel a little bit more?
0: Yes, yeah, so there's one specific documentary that answers both of those questions which so it wasn't cancelled but it was very much delayed and so uh one of our uh ongoing projects although we're just starting to wrap it up now um is for national geographic and in kind of the same uh, idea as the black panther it's actually on white lions so where i live nearby so mm-hmm. i say nearby like an hour or so sort of mm-hmm. heading towards kruger is the only place on earth that white lions in the wild naturally occur wow and so the genetics are there uh but sometimes depending you know lion mortality is kind of up there so sometimes there's no white lions Um, they've been killed or or whatever happens. And the the genes are still carrying in those local, tawny, normal-looking lions. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have to have all the right things come together for that to then come out again. And so there hadn't been any for a while. And then a few years ago, there were some uh, cubs that were born. And so we're like, we have to do a documentary. So we keep choosing, like, the, the hardest subjects ever Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) and trying to find them was they these lions move around a lot and then Mm -hmm. this pride like split into two and so they're going in different directions and oh yeah yeah but anyway we were supposed to kind of wrap that up at the beginning of the pandemic and um and so of course that kind of went on hold Mm -hmm. for quite a while and then sort of more recently we picked up the filming again but there's this huge disparity in age obviously in that time because we yeah. started filming with um, little cubs and watching them grow and get to kind of around sort of a 12 to 18 months and now they're like adults yeah so there's one of them is a male and he's you know he doesn't have the biggest mane he kind of has like a scruffy mohawk <laughs> um it's definitely not like like a captive bred white lion where you're just picturing it's like the biggest mane ever. Right. And it's like blow dried back, you <laughs> know, like there's white lions are constantly dirty. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah. I can wild, imagine they're more know? like, you know, grayish lions it, by the end of the yeah, day. Yeah. It,
0: yeah. And like, he's kind of got like fluff coming out here and there. And he's like, a, finally kind of starting to come out. Um, but he wasn't the dominant male in his pride. So from a testosterone perspective, his mane is not coming out like that happens in the dominant male. Mm-hmm. So he he's kind of had like this delayed, scruffy, <laughs> half mohawk mane, um, but he's just starting to like become a bit more dominant and like really coming into his own. Yeah, um, but it's so fascinating to watch them. But finding them is so hard, um, and again to to find enough behavior like film enough behavior to make it interesting and compelling for an Mm -hmm. audience to literally sit down for that long you can't have like a whole documentary of just beauty shots of like him sleeping or walking past like there has to be there has to be drama so
2: So
1: that was that was something I was going to ask is with these large cats do they sleep as much as my domestic cats do because I look at both of them on the bed over there just dead asleep Yes. (laughs)
0: yes 100%
1: if not more (laughs) yeah there's and of course
0: you know they're naturally nocturnal um so and for the most part our filming is uh it might be a place that we're not allowed to film at night or that's kind of not the style of the documentary or certainly not the bulk of what the footage has to be
2: right
0: so you know we'll be out following them all day and they'll be sleeping All day, and they might get up, and it's like, oh, something's gonna happen, and they literally move five meters and then plonk down somewhere else, (laughs) and And that's all that happens. And then, of course, you lose all the really good light, Mm -hmm. or you completely lose your light, and then they decide, okay, now we're gonna get up and. Play. Uh, We might go looking for something to hunt, Mm -hmm. or or a prey uh, a prey animal like walks past, and then they're like, "Ooh, opportunistic hunt," but it's like pitch black. So, (laughs) or we've finished like filming. We're okay. We're done for the day. We'll go out early in the morning and see, kind of pick up where they are. And you go back, and they've had the most epic hunt. You know, they've taken down a buffalo, (laughs) and you missed it all, and you know, they've fed on most of it and you get there and everyone's just like full bellies and they're sleeping again now for three
1: days. Oh my God. Love that. <laughs> there's, a,
0: there's a lot of that. With
1: I that can imagine. Sure. Oh yeah. my gosh. Well, that's fantastic. Um, <laughs> I want to make sure that we really do talk about this. Uh, you call it wild in Africa, the the jewelry um, company project you have. Um, tell me more about that, because obviously. You have to be very conservation focused to be the work that you do. So, how did you get started with the jewelry, and what do you guys do with that?
0: So, I I got really sick in 2016 and was uh, bedridden for roughly six months. Like, I mm-hmm. was really, really. Sick, and the first three months, I just didn't do anything and was being a cat, basically, yeah <laughs> lots of sleeping uh and then I finally got to after a few months got to a point where I was um had some mental clarity, but my body was not keeping up at all with mm-hmm. um you know what I wanted to do, and i wasn't in a position to get back into the field yet because this is this is very physical work mm-hmm. you know it's it could be quite intense um And so I was just getting very frustrated that I'd experienced all these places and these amazing conservation organisations who I was photographing and and filming for. And now all of a sudden I can't contribute at all to them. Mm -hmm. And at this point I had a bit of a following on Instagram and I was getting comments on things like, Oh, I like your bracelets. And I'd collected bracelets in my travels from all over Mm -hmm. the world. Um, And I'm like, Maybe I could do something with that because I'm literally stuck in bed. I can't do anything else. So I started to pull some of those apart, put them together, um, created a little Etsy store, just was doing all these one offs and it's, it started to do quite well. So I'm like, well, this could be something where it's a way that I can give back to these people and these organizations that I have personally met. I've seen the incredible work they do. Mm-hmm. And while I can't contribute photographically, uh, this would be a way that I could do it. And at that point, I also had no idea what my future held because it was quite, um, you know, 2016, I still have, like, the physical consequences of of that event. So it's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's quite a a long-term challenge, but... It's something where because I had a graphic design background, Mm -hmm. I could build a website and, you know, I can obviously I could take the pictures of the products. Right. Um, I knew all these amazing conservation organisations. And so it it just kind of made sense that I should like try to do it properly. So in 2017, in May, officially launched Wild in Africa, Mm -hmm. Bracelets for Wildlife, and started collaborating directly with um, conservation organisations that I'd personally worked with and witnessed their work. And so what I I do is I'll design a specific bracelet for their charity. Mm -hmm. And so you can go online and you could choose, you know, you want to buy a bracelet based on maybe the style or the look or because you want to support a certain... Um, you know conservation organization or species Um, and that has just kind of grown so we have 12 charities now but 11 bracelets so one of them uh, the money goes to two charities that work together Mm -hmm. Uh, and I have my my next one coming out hopefully by January and it is my first reptile bracelet yeah Okay. And finally, Woo! my first reptile like conservation organization that is local to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and Can it's you give going us a sneak be, peek? Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be for Sungazer lizards and awesome. their conservation and research. So super cool. Um, and they are being all the bracelets are handmade. Mm-hmm. So the, and I've designed the pendant. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited about this pendant because what I've done is a photograph of the sun gazers head looking straight down. It just looks like a dragon, you know, Mm -hmm. it's got those really bulky scales and it just goes in that really classic dragon look. So that is the pendant. Um, I'm going to see if I can find, I know it's podcast, but for you, I'm going to pull up a picture (laughs) so you can have a look um but I'm very excited about that I don't
1: know if it's gonna oh wow that's beautiful that's so yeah. a really
0: beautiful stone and then the pendant stunning. is very, very cool
2: yeah. that's really so
0: the I'm to have to, one. Have to order one
1: that. <laughs> wow that's awesome <laughs> yeah um so all of that that's is still
0: very very small um but what what I am super proud of is that these we donate 50 percent of the purchase price so not Of profit or proceeds or whatever's left over it's Mm -hmm. it's literally whatever you pay is half of that is going to that charity and certainly for charities based here in Africa Mm -hmm. um that goes a lot further than it does say in the U.S. for sure
1: yeah, well that's fantastic. And I will make sure to link that in the comments of the podcast and link your socials and everything so people can Thank reach you. out there. Um Appreciate we are reaching that. the end of our time. Oh, this has been I fantastic. I can hear my cat crying yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has been fantastic, Shannon. Like I said, I'm such a, a fan of you and all the incredible work you do. Um I always end asking a question. Um If a young girl told you she was interested in getting involved in animals or animal photography, like something you do, what advice do you have for her?
0: My advice is definitely uh, persistence. That's, like I said earlier, you know, if you're interested in something, you can really educate yourself uh, about it these days. There's so many resources. Um, But then the next key is going to be networking. And for me, that was doing a lot of uh, free work. Mm -hmm. So I was honing my skills, but I was also making really great connections in the industry that I wanted to be working in, Mm -hmm. which did eventually then obviously turn into paid work. Um, But there was definitely a lot of persistence that went along with that. So this industry, it it seems very desirable, but it's very, very niche. It's very competitive. Right. Um, And so the people that are making it at the end of the day are the ones that keep pushing and being persistent while the other people have dropped off and, you know, gone for different avenues or easier ways to earn a living. Um, So I would say utilize social media to the best of your ability. There's so many um, ways to connect with people uh, and organizations if it's if it's wildlife and conservation photography that you want to do. Practice, 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 become so familiar with your gear that it becomes intuitive. And then obviously animal behavior, any experience that you can gain to Um, increase your knowledge of animal behavior it's only going to benefit your work as a combination Mm -hmm. so yeah and as a woman in this industry you know like I said I've been doing it for 18 years it there's a shift happening in terms of more females uh, in this industry it's still very male dominated but that is changing but certainly when I began it was very very male dominated and Mm -hmm. You know, there's always going to be a mix of people that will support you and people that, that won't just for the sake of it, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's jealousy or insecurity, just keep at it, focus. Yeah. Well, there's, that's fantastic. There's a lot more opportunities.
1: Oh, gosh. You're so cool. Um <laughs> <laughs> Thank I, you. I feel like such a little kid. I mean it. You're so cool. Um, well, Shannon, that, that's fantastic. I have so enjoyed getting to talk to you. Um, I really Likewise. hope we can stay in touch and super fun. Yeah. I will um, definitely share your, uh, all of the wild in Africa and the bracelets and such um, in the comments of this podcast. But if people want to get in touch with you or follow you, where can they find you?
0: So most active on Instagram, Mm -hmm. um, which is uh, Shannon double underscore wild. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's probably the best way. And then, you know, my link in that profile kind of takes you to different places. So it will take you to the jewelry. It'll take you to um, my website. Uh, I sell prints or you can, you know, follow whatever I'm sort of doing. I try to keep it updated nicely, but generally Instagram's probably the
1: easiest. Awesome. Well, Shannon, thank you so much. Um, truly, like I said, such a pleasure. Um, I can't wait to follow you and I can't wait to get my hands on that sun gazer lizard bracelet. So, um, thank you once again. And thanks everyone for listening. We will talk at you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening.